Thank you very much for inviting me here this morning. Uh, I thought I could have got away with it last week. Uh, the show is still on the road until recess, and uh, it's been a fascinating year to me. It's been a fascinating year for many, many clinicians across the country. In actual fact, it's been a, a great privilege to be involved in such a piece of work. So back in July, I felt quite strongly that if we're really going to talk about the next phase of reform, we really need to concentrate on what I describe transforming services. I think most of you will agree, if we've had the funding, and I'm sure you may raise issues later about the future of funding, but where we are with funding at the moment, and if you believe and I believe that we do have the talent in the NHS when it comes to staff working in the NHS, I think one thing that we've lacked historically is the aspiration of actually being as competitive as we should be considering the talent we have in this country and compare ourselves in other sectors like business, science, which is another area that I obviously wear another hat working in the university sector. What is our aspirations to achieve change? And to do so, I'm sure you all agree, and I think the messages we clearly received at the time, was that transformation could only happen locally, could only be led by clinicians, and it had to be evidence-based. Now, there are a number of ways you could do that, one of which was very much based on my experience and what I did in London and some of the support I've got from colleagues in this room, was to see whether we can, in a similar way, design a review at a local level, led by clinicians, but more importantly, address some of the local challenges facing them. And we used the eight pathways, very much trying to uh, design care. And, it, and, and the unique experience, and Robert Winter is here, who's the chair of the clinical working group of the East of... Uh, east of England will tell you that I think one of the unique uh, experiences out of that was uh, the potential of bringing in clinicians from all sorts of different backgrounds actually around a pathway and challenging ourselves of what is the best models of care in which we can provide. And that exercise has been very fruitful and I think it's been an amazing lesson from a Department of Health's perspective and I say this in the presence of David as well is that you know when we let people out there to get on and do what they do best. In actual fact, if you see the publications of the te 10 different regional reports, you've come to the one conclusion, and one conclusion only. They are highly ambitious, they far exceed the expectations of anything we felt they will come up with back in October. And that process went extremely well, and that was done in partnership with the public and, uh, and, and, uh, and the users of the service at a local level. And the last 12 months is, was for me to capture through a lot of the think tanks around uh, represented in this room, uh, a lot of the clinicians across the patch, of what are the enablers required to make that change happen. And I think if you take you back to what is transforming services, you come to one conclusion, and one conclusion only, and that is quality. And what's fascinating is that the process in achieving that is completely in reverse with the process of the start of the journey back in the year 2000, which was top-down with quantity. This was all about quality, which had to be bottom-up. Now, with the enabling report, if you're talking about quality, obviously, as you would have seen from the report, quality, as I described it, is the organizing principle uh, for the NHS over the next decade. And what I wanted to do is to find ways in which we can at least use one of the most powerful levers in health, in any healthcare system, which is the transparency that goes with quality and quality reporting. 
And that took a significant uh, input from many, many colleagues across the country. And I think to start off within the quality landscape that I described, the framework uh, of quality, uh, some other interesting uh, outputs uh, and other discussions we've had. Sheila Leatherman was one, one, uh, one person. Uh, uh, consultations with organizations like IHI and others who've done, who've attempted to do this elsewhere. Uh, many, many of you sitting in this room who contributed to, the, to that debate. And I think the first challenge we had when we talked about the quality and the quality framework was firstly, what do we mean by quality and how do we set standards? And I think there's a lot in the report, as you will see, at a national level, firstly. Uh, if you look at the landscape, you will come across a, a large number of organizations and stakeholders, whether that happens to be the Department of Health, NICE, the voluntary sector, Royal Colleges, have all had an interest in quality, have all set standards. But what is the thing which was striking to us all is that very little of these standards are actually filtering down to frontline staff and actually uh, capturing that and making change happen at a local level. Whether that was an issue related to process that we fix through the next stage review, local pathway groups, or whether it was actually the confusion of the plethora of different standards which were out there and available to us. So one of the suggestions and recommendations we've made, uh, building on, on the excellence of NICE, and most of you will agree, one of the uh, great uh, uh, national organizations that were created back in the year 2000 was NICE, which has not received just national but also <coughs> international recognition for its work. So we're expanding NICE, as you know, uh, and also adding a new functionality to NICE, one of which is not just to produce standards, but also kite mark the standards of many other organizations who've been involved in that business. At the same time, we felt NICE and its uh, process of expediting uh, the, the approval of drugs, which I will come back to, one other, was, was another important role uh, which, needs to be, uh, which needs to be supported. Once you set the standards, I think there was another issue which captured the imagination of many around the country, is how do we prioritize for standard setting? And I'm sure some of you will agree in this room, back in the year 2000, that was a fairly straightforward thing to do. You know, we had patients with coronary uh, uh, vascular disease, we had patients with uh, cancer, uh, you know, some of the major burden of disease were quite obvious. Moving on to the next decade, probably that will be much more challenging. So at a national level to be able in a transparent evidence-based way of weighting what will have the greatest impact on the health of the nation was something that attracted, uh, which is quite attractive to many uh, clinicians and policymakers across the country. And again, Sheila Leatherman was another person who thought that might be an area that we need to look into. Uh, is one of our other suggestions. Ultimately, the Secretary of State who make that decision, but having that transparency around it was uh, another, uh, an, an, one, of our, one of our other recommendations at a national <coughs> level. Then you move on from, uh, from, uh, from setting standards into metrics and measures, and I'm sure you'll agree, and I've said this throughout the journey, that you can't improve something if you don't measure it. And the, the, the challenging thing about that is that although many of us who work in the service do have certain tools in measuring outcomes, I think the one area I think we probably aren't as ready and we need to be much more 
which we should have much higher regard to is what are the measures we use in measuring patient experience. And, uh, and you will see within the report I keep referring to a higher regard uh, to patient experience when you're comparing outcomes uh, versus experience, but at the same time also uh, safety being paramount as, a, uh, as some of the measures that we have suggested. Now, then, the, the issue then was, the dilemma is, and I think this would have created a riot last week, if I actually suggested that someone like us in the Department of Health should be telling professionals what they should be measuring. And it's an interesting debate, this, because if you don't ask, you know, if, if you think that these measures eventually will lead to some form of a benchmarking, then you at least need to agree of what these metrics should be. But I, I strongly believe there are, you know, the profession out there, whether you happen to be a doctor or a nurse or, or, or any other uh, individual involved in pathway and delivering of care, uh, most will clearly tell you that you know, at a local level in a service line, uh, whatever we measure should reflect the accountability, should reflect the, the, the care pathway across its length rather than the individual contribution to any clinician within that pathway. We said once we measure, we're going to publish, and uh, most of you will know, including mandating uh, at every NHS provider to publish their quality accounts, and that is, you know, every provider has a large number of service lines, and we, each of these the service lines, uh, I, we, we all felt that the logic of publishing this to empower the patients, which I will come back to, and at the same time to use that to uh, uh, improvement and service improvements and uh, probably that is more important from the perspective of displaying those in the form of clinical dashboards and most of you, some of you sitting in this room who contributed to the national theme around quality which Liam Donaldson led uh, came to the conclusion the possibility of providing tools uh, to clinicians in the front line in the use of clinical dashboards for system improvement. We went even further with, the with, with, uh, uh, with the use of the quality bonus, which is rewarding for quality, and we felt for the first year, at least, we should encourage the system to report rather than pay for quality, and the year later, then the payment, the bonus, which will be an uplift of the tariff from next year onwards, will be associated with the quality uh, based on the experience, but also based on, the, uh, on, on outcomes of care. Throughout the report, you will also see a, uh, a, a significant uh, uh, investment on what we've done over the last, uh, again, eight months or so in relation to the clinical pathway groups and the suggestions of having a medical director at every SHA and a clinical advisory group really to keep the spirit of the review and the eight pathways. And Cyril will tell you where they are when it comes to the London SHA and, uh, and keeping the momentum to the eight pathway groups, and more importantly, how do we engage the eight pathway groups who've charted the, the waters when, it, when it's come to the, uh, the different pathways in getting them more involved in commissioning for these pathways in the future. Also, there's a lot in the report about innovation, uh, something very close to my heart, and uh, Sally is here, and she's been involved in, uh, and as Mark Brittle and a number of others in the department, really capturing from what's out there when it comes to making innovation the business of all of those who work in the NHS, but also creating the right incentives for pull rather than uh, historical uh, way in which we try to push innovation in some areas, probably in some areas unsuccessfully. Uh, 
the changes in the tariff which has been in the system, and I know many of you have uh, have suggested that an uh, uh, introduction of the normative tariff over a period of time starting from 2010-2011 uh, uh, to allow some stability in the system, the creation of innovation funds, and also going even further and mandating for SHAs to have innovation as part of their uh, strategic plans. At the same time, uh, we also felt that we need to really build on the provider end of innovation and uh, we make a reference and it's fascinating to see the appetite following the London report for the creation of Academic Health Sciences Centre and uh, that is there uh, in the report too and I think uh, very much trying to accommodate the different models that uh, you have come up with over the last year. But I think the one which is probably the most exciting is the creation of the health, innovation and education clusters. And the purpose of which is not just innovation, but let's not forget education, because some of the other challenges we had over the last 12 months was MMC, post-MMC, obviously the TUC report coming up in October, and some of the recommendations such as Medical Education England, uh, which I will come back to. But I felt, and many sitting in, in this room that I remember talking to, felt that we should actually create clusters at a local level and split the provider and commissioner end of deaneries and really build on the provider end in the creation of clusters by bringing primary secondary care, the private sector, the voluntary sector, and uh, also try to introduce a more transparent way of funding of education and training by the introduction of a, a, a tariff in the system. So what does all this mean to patients? And I think if you really look through the report, you uh, the, the, the one thing that strikes you is that obviously significantly greater empowerment of patients, whether that comes to choice. I don't think many of you sitting in this room would have believed a year ago that we will be legislating for choice, and I think that is probably the most important lever we have in there. Uh, there is no healthcare insurance system on the globe, actually, that will provide you with free choice of care anywhere providing NHS care in England. That is an extremely powerful lever to have from a patient's perspective. Not only choice, but also really referring to what matters to choice, which is informed choice. Uh, the quality framework will, although it will take time, this is not going to happen over, over a year or two, that, inf that quality uh, 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 metrics that are referred to is probably the most powerful uh, lever from a patient's perspective in exercising that choice. Within the Constitution, there are many other rights and responsibilities. The one that also uh, received a lot of interest is the access to nice drugs and, uh, and finishing off, obviously, the other two main themes from a patient perspective is the care plans for long-term conditions, but also the personalised budgets. And as you are aware from the report, we're introducing those in a in pilot way initially with with some vigorous evaluation because there has been some concerns about personalised budgets and what that means and how do we make sure that they are implemented in the most appropriate way. I think the other bit which I'll finish off is what does this mean for staff and I, uh, we've learnt a lot from the experience over the last eight months by the engagements of the clinical working groups at a local level and, and again how could you exploit the amount of energy, the enthusiasm at a local level in freeing up people to get on and do what they do best and there's a significant amount in the report in freeing up staff in the community, uh, putting clinicians more in charge of service lines, uh, 
uh, more in charge on budgets, HR decisions, but what comes with that, as I describe as the new professionalism, is a new accountability structure. And that new accountability is, if you read between the lines in that report, is the transparency of reporting of what we do. And that in itself, I have no doubt, although requires a significant cultural change, uh, will, as being another more powerful lever at a local level in making that change happen. I'm sure you'll recognize we've also invested in building up the leadership capacity within the system and, uh, and David has taken a personal interest on this at a national level but I think more importantly at a local level we need to really drive uh, the capacity build for leadership and, uh, and management and within that context uh, I strongly believe this is a leadership with a purpose unlike some of the leadership attempts we've had before and we're talking about here leadership for quality and uh, if we are to empower clinicians to get on into management and leadership role, I have no doubt you will agree that we need to have the right tools, the right mechanisms in which we will inject that talent into the system, whether we use the great resources available in the King's Fund and others, but I think what's important is we have a coordinated approach in, uh, in building up the leadership capacity throughout the system. Finally, the Constitution. You've seen that, the rights and responsibilities of patients. I'm sure we will debate that, the rights and responsibilities of staff. And uh, I'll tell you something about the Constitution, is that you know, it wasn't something that you know, attracted a huge amount of my attention within the first three to four months. But uh, subsequent to that, I could tell you, the more I read into it, the more I recognize as a clinician working in the health service, that a lot of these rights and responsibilities that I wasn't even aware of. And, uh, and it's been well, well received, and uh, that's out for consultation for a period of 12 to 14 weeks, and I have no doubt you can contribute to that as well. So thank you for having me, and uh, I hope that gave you snippets, really, of what the review was all about. And more importantly, I want to thank you for all what you've you know, all the contributions you've made over the last 12 months and keeping us on the steer, whether these were direct emails or whether these were articles in the newspapers or in other, in other policy avenues. So thank you.